Good morning. I'm Nathan Casper, and today's Advent reading comes from Isaiah 40, verses 4 through 11. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I, am, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. He who will contend with me, let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all, who, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, Walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. Thank you so much. Good morning. Wonderful to be with you in person. For those online as well, wonderful opportunity to be able to open up God's word together and explore it just as has been read to you. One quick thought as we're about to go to prayer is that we are a burden, of course, for the Felton family. Lawrence went home to be with the Lord Jesus this past week and funeral will be this Saturday. The time for visitation is at 1030. And then, of course, the service begins at 12 noon. And so you want to be following along and determining how to be able to be involved in uh, offering your respects to the family. We're going to be praying for them. Let's look to our Lord together now in prayer. And our Father, we're thanking you for who you are. You're our God. You're the sovereign one. You're Lord over all. You see past, present, and future simultaneously. You understand our future better than we understand our past. You are the one Father that has, from eternity past, put in plan, in motion, a strategy for the second member of the Trinity to be able to enter into this world to die for our sins. We're awed, Father, even by what has just been read to us that Isaiah, eight centuries prior, could be so detailed so specific in the way in which he's describing events pertaining to the one we know as Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior. And so, Father, if you can handle the matters of eternity, you can handle the matters of the todays of our lives. 
And no matter what today holds for us or tomorrow holds for us, you're there, you go ahead of us, you guide us, you direct us, and we give you all the praise. So Father, this morning, third in our time of being able to look into the songs of the servant of Isaiah, we're praying that once again that you would warm these hearts, <clears throat> engage these minds, and shape these wills. As again, now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. And we're praying these things again now, still in, in Jesus' name. Amen. It was in 1971 when Colonel James Irwin was walking the face of the moon. Astronaut, they settled down upon a place that has now been dubbed Genesis Cove on the moon. And he recounts the story of prior to that time in outer space where having been raised in a Christian family, he had not taken seriously the Christian faith. And Jesus Christ was certainly part and parcel of all family discussions, but he had not reached a point where he had put faith and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ as his Savior and as his Lord. But something gripped him as he was exploring the outer portions of the universe. And upon his return, he made a firm, full commitment to Jesus Christ as his Savior and as his Lord. He would share that at a prayer gathering in Washington, D.C. with a number of dignitaries present. Humbled by the extraordinary awesome goodness of God. Irwin went on to share his true feelings, which went something like this. As I was returning to earth, I realized that I was a servant, not a celebrity. So I am here before you as God's servant on planet earth to share what I've experienced that others might know the glory of God. Doesn't that grip you? Here's a man who could revel in his celebrity status, but coming to grips with the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, he identified himself as servant. Now, eight centuries prior, here we find Isaiah, a prophet in the Old Testament, in this incredible passage of Scripture, stating that this Messiah to come needs to be understood as not merely a servant, but rather he has been given the title of the servant. Sometimes people are prone to reduce the Messiah to he's the king, or he's the savior. What we need is a constellation of terms because not one term captures the complete essence of who he is. And so Isaiah here is utilizing the title of the servant to help us to understand how the second member of the Trinity would identify himself in relationship to the master plan laid out for him by the first member of the Trinity. So what I want to do now in this third of the four 
servant songs found in the book of Isaiah is to now draw out three particular needs that you and I are able to spot in these verses that help us to better understand how to relate to God the Father through the work of God the Son. Eight centuries prior now, Isaiah is going to pen these words, and I want you to see the specificity. Pick up on the nuances. Note the little details found here in these verses and link them to the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. It's going to impact you. But you're going to start with me this morning by looking very carefully at verse 4 down through verse 6. We're going to put it this way. As you and I, as we focus upon the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, begin here now by noting with me the teachings needing to be obeyed. Notice how this begins. The Lord God has given me. And this is the Messiah speaking. And as he is speaking, he is identifying the sovereign God as the Lord God, which appears four times in this particular song, each time in the emphatic position at the start of a line. The Lord God has given me. Now there's grace beginning to unfold, but furthermore, here are the marching orders of the second member of the Trinity as being given by the first member of the Trinity to him. He views himself then as being the servant in all of this. By calling him the Lord God at this point, what the Messiah is doing, though co-equal with the first member of the Trinity, he's offering you and me a sense of the majesty of God, an elevated understanding of God, the exalted position of God. Whatever it is that you're starting with this week, ask yourself, am I dealing with lowercase or am I dealing with uppercase levels when it comes to understanding how to make this week work? He begins with the Lord God, and this is the second member of the Trinity. Speaking of the first member of the Trinity, this is how he is going to unpack these verses for us. Therefore, that's how we ought to unpack this week for ourselves. Now, once you've got an elevated view of God operating in your life, and you see that you're getting marching orders from God, and that's God's grace to you and God's grace to me, notice what comes next. The tongue of those who are taught. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. What stands out to you here? Well, obviously God the Father is not distant here. He's personal here. What I want you to see is that the phrase, the tongue of those who are taught, carries with the idea of being a disciple. So many times when we think of discipleship, we think of Matthew chapter 28, don't we? Go into the world, make disciples of all nations. Have you considered that eight centuries prior in this promise, the second member of the Trinity is willing to be discipled by the first member of the Trinity? And that the great example of discipleship does not begin with the Great Commission. It begins with this promise early on 
where the Messiah himself is willing to humble himself in the second member of the Trinity before the first member of the Trinity and take on the responsibilities of going to the cross to die for your sins and my sins, he is willing to take on the responsibilities and the privileges of being discipled by the first member of the Trinity, the tongue of those who are taught. What this tells you What this tells me, then, is that the Messiah is teachable. Now, you and I know that when we read the gospel accounts, Jesus Christ is the master teacher, isn't he? The great teacher. But what we want to see here is that great teachers are teachable. And in order to teach well, we must be teachable with regard to what matters most in life. And so here now, Messiah is positioning himself eight centuries prior. This is already being established within the Godhead that he will make himself teachable to the first member of the Trinity. And he's going to draw attention to the fact that he is the sovereign one, the Lord God. Now, for those that have spent a fair amount of time traveling in Europe, If you made your way to Switzerland, you know that there's this extraordinary monument set up to a a teacher. They they elevate teachers. They put them on pedestals throughout time. And there's a particular monument to a man by the name of Pestalozzi from a time past. And at his death, the community thought that it would be appropriate to establish a monument to honor him a monument commemorative of his selfless service. And in the midst of all this, what you would find is that there would be students carved out looking upwards towards the teacher. So the monument was erected. Day came for its unveiling. The sculptor had succeeded in making something appear so real that it gripped the attention of all who knew the teacher. He got it. The teacher was shown looking down on the kneeling form of a little boy, uplifted gaze focused upon the face of the teacher. But after the unveiling, here's what's interesting, and this is how it relates to this story. Some people in the community pulled the sculptor aside and told him it was a wonderful work of art, captured the essence of the teacher. But there was something lacking here. He had failed to represent the dominant desire of the teacher, not to have those he taught looking up at him with wonderment, but rather upward to the challenging heights beyond, goals as yet attained, to God. The sculptor went back to work. Change was made. A second unveiling occurred. And in the second unveiling, there's this kneeling child looking not at the face of the teacher, but looking beyond toward the heavens. Those of you that have been given the privilege and the responsibility of teaching, Make absolutely certain that you are teachable as a teacher. 
And furthermore, make absolutely certain that you are establishing an opportunity for people to gaze beyond, to see beyond. If your teachings are in the science field, let them see the designer behind his design. Mathematics, allow them to be able to see how the calculations fit with the order in this universe. Through it all, the person who teaches literature, allow them to be able to understand the significance of the literature of God's word and the greatness that's found here. Look for links and ways to be able to lift people's attention to something beyond, you see. Now here's the amazing thing. The second member of the Trinity was lifting the attention of people so that they would gaze upward towards the working and the master plan of the first member of the Trinity whose strategy was for Messiah to go into this world to die for your sins and my sins. And eight centuries prior, Isaiah is linking Bethlehem to Calvary. Are you doing that this Christmas season? Is it disjointed? Or are you finding a way to create a highway from Bethlehem to Calvary and what took place when Jesus died for our sins? Well, you're still in verse 4. We'll move a little slow here. But the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. In other words, he's a disciple being discipled by the first member of the Trinity. And furthermore, it goes on to say that I may know how to sustain with a word, him who is weary. Now, what I want you to be able to do in the coming days is to begin to spot who in your circles, because perhaps of 2020, is wearied, weighed down. It seems as though there ought to be more to life than what they're experiencing at this point. But it's been a heavy experience for them. Perhaps losses, detachments, distance. But the master teacher himself would say, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, or in some translations, weary. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. This is the teacher speaking of the importance for us to learn from him as he learned the marching orders from the first member of the Trinity. Do you see the educational strategy unfolding? Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart. And if you shrink back from the word gentle, gentle in the Greek means power under control. You can be gentle and be strong. Just means you got your power under control, not out of control. My yoke's easy. My burden's light, you see that I may know how to sustain with the word. So now what you're going to do is that you're going to take timeless truths and you're going to communicate them in timely ways. 
in this time period we find ourselves in. So you're looking for the wearied ones in the circle of relationships that God has placed you in. And as you do so, and you're still in verse 4, you notice that what comes next is that this Messiah has got an extraordinary early morning devotional time where he gets his marching orders from the day. It's morning by morning, you see. Every morning. He's awakened from the night, and now what he wants to know in terms of a preview is what is God's will for me through the word of God to me. Morning by morning, he awakens. And what it fascinates me in the Hebrew is that the idea of the awakening here is something which is continuous. This is ongoing. This is not sporadic. It is a daily encounter the second member of the Trinity is having with the first member of the Trinity. And if that would be his case, then picture what our case ought to be morning by morning as we do a preview of what God's agenda is for the day. With Bible wide open, you're reflecting upon the strategies that he would have for you, have for me. And then notice the wording that comes next here. He awakens my ear. There are times where you just feel as though God's word is shouting at you. And I did that with a whisper. Because God has a way, you see, of elevating the volume in our ears. He awakens my ear to hear those who are taught. And I was struck by that wording when I was uh, pondering a written statement by a missionary translator who's trying to find a word for obedience in the native language of the people that he was communicating the gospel to. Obedience. Struggling. One day he returned home from the village and he, he whistled for his dog. He came running at full speed. And an elderly man, a native in the area, seeing what was occurring, said admiringly in his native tongue, Your dog is all ear. Immediately the missionary knew that he had his word for obedience. Are you all ear when it comes to the matters of God's word? And you say, these have been tough days. These have been challenging times. I've experienced distancing. I've experienced loss. I've experienced disappointment. Yet morning by morning, the second member of the Trinity says, I'm getting my marching orders and my preview. At the end of the day, it will be my review. But early in the morning, morning by morning, on a continual basis, he awakens. And then for dual emphasis, he awakens, but what my ear, you see, to hear as those who are taught, and now he comes full circle because he's saying, to hear as those who are taught, I'm teachable so that I can teach. And this is the second member of the Trinity saying this in his relationship to the first member of the Trinity. Are you teachable in the midst of your challenging times? Now, 
Now you've made your way to verse 5. And so now in verse 5, once again, you and I are struck with the emphatic position of the word, the Lord God. Where again now, he is the second member of the Trinity, acknowledging the supreme status of the sovereign God of the universe, the one of whom he will get his marching orders from. For the Son of God, man, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And furthermore, you and I are told that he came to do the will of the Father. So now he says, the Lord God has opened my ear. And what I want you to now ponder is this. There's no pushback. I was not rebellious. What captures your attention now? Did you notice it's in the past tense? Isaiah is saying, even though it's in the future, it's good as done. That's how definite, how definitive this is with regard to the Messiah's relationship to the first member of the Trinity. I was not, does not say, I will not. I was not rebellious. I turned not backward, unlike Lot's wife. There's something that amazes us at this point, then, is that without pushback, no matter how challenging the times, no matter how difficult the circumstances that are confronting him, there's this sense of loyal submission to the sovereign one, the second member of the Trinity, submitting to the will of the first member of the Trinity, I turned not backward. Now, what you want to do over the course of the Advent season, then, is to begin to link. Link Bethlehem to Calvary. And watch Jesus Christ and his trajectory. We don't see backward movements as if I'm going to go back to where it's safe. But rather, he's going to go where it's risky. He's going to go where it's difficult. He's going to go where he knows in advance he will be opposed. And yet he pushes forward. Now is there anything, any circumstance in your life right now where you're so reticent that you say, my, my natural tendency is to take some steps back. There's this extraordinary scene that I've pondered when I years ago walked congregation through the book of Mark. When Mark chapter 10, Jesus has his disciples, as he himself is being discipled by the first member of the Trinity. For once again, he informs his disciples he's heading to Jerusalem to be crucified. In the 10th chapter of Mark, verse 32, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. Who does that say to you? He wasn't lagging behind, even though he knew what was transpiring. My word, he's taking the lead, even when he meant to go to the cross. 
Where's God calling you to take the lead, even though it means going into some tough circumstances? The Lord God's opened my ear. I was not rebellious. Second past tense statement about the future. I turned not backward. Get what comes next. And I, I want this to I want this to seize your heart now, okay? A little cardiology here. I gave my back to those who strike. Notice it doesn't say they forced me to turn my back so they could strike me. He voluntarily turns his back, past tense about future, to those who strike. And now capture the details here. And my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. Ouch. We want to protect our beards, don't we? Amen, I heard that. And in Matthew chapter 26, verse 67, eight centuries later, Then they spit in his face and struck him. Do you see that God is sovereign over the smallest details of this story? And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? And in the reality, he's in the midst of prophesying right now because eight centuries prior. It was promised that he would turn the back. He would be struck. They would pluck out his beard. This is a painful experience that he's going through at this point. But Christmas is meant to be linked to Calvary. And as you and I focus upon Messiah, servant of the Lord, you note here the teachings needing to be obeyed. He's going through a, a tough time. It's winter in his experience. But spring is coming. You know that story from Lore, from the Lion of the Witch in the Wardrobe. And there you have it. Lucy is talking to Mr. Tumnus now. And she's experienced summer from where she came from when she walked through that wardrobe. And now it's cold outside. And she's learning about this one who's inflicted the endless winter upon Narnia. When Mr. Tumnus says to, says to Lucy, it's always winter and never Christmas. Always winter. Never Christmas, unless, of course, you're watching Hallmark movies where it's always Christmas. <laughs> Just had to throw that one in. So there you have it. Now, there's the first of the three of the needs. 
the teachings needing to be obeyed in verse 4 through 6. But now, second of all, notice with me the trials needing to be endured in verse 7 through 9 sort of overlap. But now, once again, what you and I find here in the emphatic position in the Hebrew, where do you find? What, what is it? The Lord God, but this time, but the Lord God. Why? In other words, everything's going wrong. But God. Look for all the but gods in Scripture. It means something was going wrong, and then God breaks in with a but God. And he takes the negative, turns it into the positive. But the Lord God helps me, which is what you need to say to your heart right now. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Have you spotted that the word grace is found within the word disgrace? Now, those that oppose the Messiah, Jesus Christ, prior to and during the crucifixion, were attempting to disgrace him. But the disgrace they were attempting to achieve via crucifixion was the grace that God was providing through crucifixion. You see. And three days later, the ones who attempted to disgrace him would find that grace would be made available to them through him. So what you are told here is this. Once you've got a but the Lord going, but the Lord God going, you're able to put in a therefore in your own life experience. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. Just like Jesus going ahead of his disciples, he himself being discipled by first member of the Trinity. And I know that I shall not be put to shame because three days later he will be raised from the grave. Now you're up, you see, to verse 8. He who vindicates me is near. Now he's using forensic terms, legal terms, judicial terms for the, um, the lawyer in the group. Able to say here at this point is that even though in the courts, both the Gentile courts, the Roman courts, as well as the Jewish courts, everything seemed to say guilty, the empty tomb cries out, vindicated. He is who he claimed to be and set out to do what he set out to do. And therefore, we validate and we vindicate this one we know as Messiah. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? So now he poses this to those who are challenging him in the, in the cosmic court of the universe. Let us stand up together. Who's my adversary? Let him come near to me. And then what happens? What I want you to do now is to take the but the Lord God of verse 7 and link it now to behold the Lord God in verse 9. Behold the Lord God helps me. You need to be able to say that right now. Some of us in these various services, a lot of us online right now, we need to be able to take but the Lord God helps me, and link it to, behold, the Lord God helps me. 
Are you doing that? Are you linking a verse 7 to verse 9 in your own personal experience? Because this is what Messiah did. So then some questions arise. Who will declare me guilty? Oh, the Jewish Sanhedrin did. And yes, the Roman courts did. But the empty grave proves otherwise. The sovereign court says sinless. Behold, he says, regarding all those who will push back. All of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. In other words, for them who are opposed to God's will right now in their 2020 experience, this is as good as it gets. But you see, for the believer, this is as bad as it gets. You don't face damnation. The unbeliever, this life is as good as it gets. 2020 and all. But for the believer, this stuff is as bad as it gets. Grave's empty, you know. Vindicate it. Validate it. Oliver Cromwell's secretary. Straight out of history. Sent to the continent some important work, business. Stayed one night at a seaport town, tossing in his bed, unable to sleep. Now, back in the day, according to an old custom, get this, a servant had to sleep in the room of a dignitary. And on this occasion, the servant was sleeping soundly. But the secretary, at length, according to the biography, awakened the man, asked how it was that his master could not rest. I'm so afraid something will go wrong with this mission, was the reply. Sir, said the servant, may I ask a question or two? Yes. Sir, did God rule the world before we were born? He did. A second question. Will he rule the world after we are dead? He will. Then, sir, why not let him rule in the present time, too? Are you recognizing that God is meant to rule in the present time of your 2020 experience, too? that it's not just for the Israelites of the past and not for the new heaven and new earth of tomorrow. It's for the now of your life. What have you done so far? As you and I focus upon the Messiah, given the title, the servant of the Lord, you're noting with me the teachings needing to be obeyed. You spotted them in four through six. We're interesting, the one who discipled was the one willing to be discipled. Second of all, the trials needing to be endured, seven through nine, already past tense statements about future experiences for the Messiah. But now thirdly, out of verses 10 and 11, 
the trust needing to be given. Question. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Question. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Now here's the deal. So many of us are trafficking right now among people that are directionally challenged in the darkness of their current life experience and they're stumbling. And they need someone to come along and put light on their path. Give them a new sense of direction for their lives. When Robert Louis Stevenson was a boy, six, seven, he was watching a lamplighter at work one evening. As the boy was silently watching at the window, he saw a man moving up and down the street, lighting street lamps one by one. His mother came up to him, asked, what are you doing? And Stevenson replied, I'm watching a man punch holes in the darkness. Ah, people, this large congregation online, as well as present in the building, we've been positioned by God in this county to punch holes in the darkness of people's lives so they can now find a sense of direction in a directionally challenged culture we find ourselves in. People are stumbling along the way. Some are going to rely upon their own light, artificial light, rather than the one who said, I'm the light. So you need to behold. Look at verse 11. Behold, he says, those that want to do it their way, trust in their approach, their scheme, their name. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, and walk by the light of your fire, by the torches you've kindled, this you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. But he's gracious enough at this point to give the warning. Light's kind. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord. As someone wrote, trust him when dark doubts assail thee. Trust him when thy strength is small. Trust him when to trust him simply seems simply the hardest thing of all. What's the trust level like today in the trials of life? Pulling it together here. See how all this links together and how Jesus born in Bethlehem didn't shrink back from heading towards the cross. You're linking Christmas, you see, to Good Friday, you know. Teachings needing to be obeyed in four through six. Trials needing to be endured seven through nine. And he went forward, not backward. Trust needing to be given in verses 10 and 11. And when you do that, well, then you're accepting the challenge being given. Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God, which is what Colonel Irwin did when upon his return, standing before leaders in Washington, D.C., was able to say, as I was returning to earth, I realized I was a servant not a celebrity. So I'm here as God's servant on planet Earth.
to share what I've experienced that others might know the glory of God. Let's stand together. Three needs you've drawn out for us here in these verses. If there's one thing about life, it's that life is filled with needs. But Jesus broke in, light of the world, shines in our darkness. And those that have put faith and trust in him can now see. You know, we've got hindsight. Promises of Old Testament foresight. But as we open up your word, now we've got insight. So Father, teach us now how to take all that's here and apply it to life. To make a difference all for your glory. And we'll give you the praise now. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.